If you would, turn in your Bible to Lamentations chapter 3. Lamentations chapter 3. I really wish I would have entitled this sermon Of Good Hope and Not A Good Hope, and it's just occurring to me now. It's a small change, but I think it makes a difference. There you go. Thank you. In your minds, that's what it is. Well, sometimes I think the greatest uh, realities in life are captured succinctly by the great theological brain trust in the comic strip world. And that is certainly what I experienced this week when someone sent me a uh, Peanuts, Charlie Brown, comic, comic strip. And there, there was Lucy... And Charlie Brown sitting under a tree doing their philosophical work for the week. And Lucy says, asks rather, uh, Charlie Brown, what has happened to this younger, younger generation, Charlie Brown? And Charlie Brown responds, well, Lucy, it all started with bicycle helmets. And now everyone gets a trophy. And kids don't know what it's like to feel pain when they do something stupid. Stupid should hurt. That's profound. Stupid should hurt. Now, I think we can agree that stupid is not the best way to capture our spiritual malady in our depravity, but I don't know that it's that far off either. Because you see, what we have learned so far in Lamentations is that the most foolish thing that anyone can ever do in the economy of living is to leave the Word of Almighty God. It's foolish. And here's the reality. Everyone in this room has done it. All of us. The book of Lamentations is not profitable to a people who have never left the Word of God. And so that should give us encouragement even in the face of what seemingly is the harsh judgment of God, although it is merely uh, the equitable justice of God that, that this is written for our benefit because we have in so many ways left the Word of God. And so we must say uh, with Jeremiah what he has already said in chapter 1 verse 18, the Lord is right for I have rebelled against His Word but hear all you people and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. The, the foolishness of uh, the leaving the Word of God hurts. Sin leads people to feel, and this is what we learned last week, as though God is against them, that He is their enemy, that He is hemming them in, and that He has left them without help or hope. That is what the nation of Israel has experienced in these first two chapters, and really the, the, the first 18 verses of chapter 3 just go on to explain that reality because of their action in leaving the Word of God. Sin really does lead us to death. Sin really has radically impacted the human race. And there is no greater, I think, illustration of the fact that we have left the Word of God than the reality that most of our churches today reject the doctrine of radical or total depravity. And generally, the arguments that come against 
radical depravity is, but we're not as bad as we could be. You're right. That has nothing to do with the doctrine of radical depravity, though. Because the, the doctrine of radical depravity merely insists that we have been infected in every area of our being with sin. We fall short of the glory of God in every area of our lives. doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could be. That would only come if God removed all of His grace from our lives. It merely means that we are severely inflicted and infected with sin. And I think that the the area where we can see this most clearly, if we really stop and think about it, and it does require thinking on our part, which in a second you'll see is the whole problem, uh, is when we consider our depravity in the area of our intellect and what, what theologians call the noetic fall. Noetic, not Noah, the guy that built the boat, but noetic in the sense of our intelligence, that our minds are fallen. We don't think well. Think about the circumstances of this book. Think about the circumstances of Jeremiah and Lamentations. Here is a group of people who have lived in the face of God in covenant with God, and he has proven himself over generations that when he says he will do something, when God's word comes, thus saith the Lord, every time that he says, this is what I will do, that is what happens. Because God is faithful to himself and to his word. And yet, the nation is faced with economic problems, with, uh, with diplomatic problems, with political problems, with religious problems. And what the nation does is not, hold on for a second, guys, let's think about the word of the Lord. They pivot and they look to Egypt and to the rest of the surrounding world around them for wisdom. And what has happened? They've come to utter destruction. In their trouble, they looked to the world and what they found was ruin. The problem that precipitates lamentations is found in the stinking thinking. In the way that they have thought about the Word of God. And ultimately, it is in their depraved nature to rebel against God in their heart. Friends, there's going to be a great day one day. I've thought about this all week in several circumstances that I've faced. When we will no longer suffer the effects of the noetic fall. There will be no more books to read. There will no longer be this difficulty of the preacher isn't as good as we want him to be and the congregation isn't as attentive as I want them to be. That will all be done away with. There will not be this barrier in our communication because we will have the mind of Christ and we will behold Him face to face in all of His glory. And there will be in that moment an aha. Oh, that's what I've been straining after all of my life. The noetic fall has had far-reaching consequences in our mind. And as we think through that reality... I think that should cause us in our heart of hearts to be grateful not for the preacher, not for the building, not for the, the instruments of ministry, but for the words of God. Because the words of God are His grace, week in and week out, that the effects of the noetic fall are reversed through the preaching of His Word as our minds are conformed to the image of Christ under the power of the Spirit of Almighty God.
Understand, and let me be clear, we can't reverse the noetic fall in our own strength by studying. We can't undo our intellectual problem. The Spirit of God must be our teacher, and He must heal what is broken in our ability, inability to think well. So with that in mind, if you would stand with hearts humbled and thankful for the words that here God has inspired through His prophet Jeremiah, starting in verse 19 of chapter 3. He has finished with verse 18, and now He turns to us and He says, Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I hope, that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth. Let him set alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust that there may be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. Let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but through the... He, but though, excuse me, he caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of man to crush underfoot all of the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit. The Lord does not approve. This is God's word to you and I. This is his kindness. This is his grace. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into your presence today thankful for your word. We are so thankful that in spite of the disordering of our minds, that you come to us through your word and in the power of your spirit, afresh and anew, to conform us into the image of Christ. So may it be today that these words would have their desired impact, that they wouldn't return void, but that they would have their full effect and be inscribed on all of our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Here we find this grand transition of the lament. Again, last week he ended after describing all of the ways in which he felt like God was against him and the nation. And In verse 18 he says, My endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. He's gotten to the point where he is being spiritually honest that in all of the assaults upon the Word of God and the people of God, he has almost lost hope in the Lord himself. But then Jeremiah does something stunning in verse 19. And he pivots from the reality of the the depression in his own heart. And he looks out at you and I. And he says, look, my circumstances haven't changed. Uh, the, the things that are going on around me have not changed. I want you to remember my affliction, my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. He, he looks us straight in the face and he says, life is hard. These things have befallen me because of my own leaving of the Word of God. Because the nation has left the Word of God and given herself over to false teachers. 
But then he goes on in verse 20, and he says, My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. What he's saying is the, the more that I think, the more that memory is a gift of God. But it depends on how we use it as what, to whether or not it is a blessing or a curse. Because what he is saying is as I continually remember my calling into the ministry and my, my engagement with the people of God and all that God has done throughout uh, Israel's history, I remember good things, but then I look at what's going on right now and oh, my hope faints away. I sink into despair. But then there is this glorious, this glorious turn. His, his memory has been feasting on the fall that has besieged His people, but now it is employed towards something better. Instead of His memory being the servant of despondency, it becomes the handmaiden of hope. And so He cries out in verse 21, but this I call to mind, and therefore I hope. There is this turning from all of the things that have happened to the people of God because of their leaving of the Word of God, and it would almost bring him to spiritual ruin. But then he employs his mind in a better direction, and that is why he has hope. Jeremiah takes his mind from the excruciating pain and he places his mind on the inexhaustible riches of the attributes of Almighty God. Friends, that one of the greatest joys of being able to spend six years, six and a half years in the Psalms with you on Wednesday night is I learned that this pivotal point is so common in the life of a believer. It's so common throughout the Psalter. We find often in the Psalms that the psalmist doesn't come to the end of the circumstance and it's all resolved. The positive impact of the Psalter is that we can see that though we live in the face of suffering in the here and now, the but I look to the Lord verses but I lifted my eyes to the heaven, but I considered the work of God, but I thought about Him and what He has done. The, the releasing from our suffering doesn't come only, now it can, but it doesn't come only when we are released from the particular sufferings of this life. Often, it comes more triumphant as our minds are unshackled from the circumstances of this life and they are placed upon the triune God of all of the universe. And we realize then that in God's unchanging character, we can find hope. Think about this reality in chapter 2, verse 17. Jeremiah has already told us, the Lord has done what He purposed. He has carried out His Word. There is hope inscribed in that verse, in those words. Why? Because if God has promised to deliver His people... He's going to deliver them. And even if you're living in a time when it seems like the city is besieged and the people have been taken off into captivity, Lord, what are You doing? Then we can come to the conclusion that the carrying away into captivity is part of His working for the ultimate deliverance of His people. We look past the circumstances and we hold on to the eternal promises of Almighty God. The Lord has carried out His Word and He will continue to do so. God will not change 
even if our lives do. And so Jeremiah then comes and declares exactly where his hope has been grounded. And it's fantastic. I mean, all of the darkness that I was thinking as I was working through this this week, we should have started here. This is great. We've been pedaling uphill, y'all. I mean, we, it has been like driving through a, 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 a dark tunnel. Like it's bleak. It's hopeless. This is not hopeless. And then the one thing that has changed is that here Jeremiah, the great lamenter, the great prophet, is no longer looking at the circumstances of this life, but at the character and the power of Almighty God when he says, starting in verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. The the Lord is good to those who wait for Him. To the soul who seeks Him. The greatness of God here is demonstrated, I believe, in four different categories. In verse 22, we see that the great, we see God's great love in the face of great suffering. He says in verse 22, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. That is the, the Hesed love of God, the binding covenantal love. In the face of all that we suffer, God's love has not been moved. And here is what we have to see in the shadows of lamentation as we have heard about mothers cannibal, being cannibals and, and devouring their own children, as we've understood the political leaders have been taken off, the, the temple has been desecrated, the entire political structure has somewhat come to ruin. We've never lived in circumstances that bleak. And yet what we know is that even when things get that bad, the love of God has never moved. It's never wavered. It's never changed. Matthew Henry said this, The church of God is like Moses' bush, burning yet not consumed. Whatever hardships it has met with or may meet with, it shall have a being in the world to the end of time. It is persecuted of men, but not forsaken of God. And therefore, though it is cast down, it is not destroyed. Corrected, yet not consumed. Refined in the furnace as silver, but not consumed as dross. Our God's love never ceases. God allows great suffering, but that great suffering never diminishes His love towards you and I. In verse 23, we see that God's faithful renewal of that merciful love is day by day. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. They, in verse 23, refers back to the mercies that never come to an end. Think about it. Jeremiah has seen the city besieged. And when he's saying his mercies are new every morning, that's not a... Boy, I don't think Jeremiah was setting back going, you know what? Hallmark's going to do great things with this verse. I bet you that they're even going to put it in one of their cute little movies. He's not thinking about the sentimentality of what we do when we come to rip this verse out of its context. He is looking at His people who are starving to death, their homes on fire, their families destroyed, their young men and young women driven away. And yet in the midst of all of that, He sees the child who's found a crumb of bread. The young woman who has 
found somewhere a scrap of clothing to cover her shame. He's looking at the lowest of the circumstances, but he's saying even in the midst of those difficult circumstances, look around. You might not think they're God's mercies, but they're there. Because that begging child in the face of the fall doesn't deserve the bread. That young woman, even though our heart and our humanity goes out to her, does not deserve a stitch of clothing. All we, like sheep, have gone astray and we deserve hell and perdition. But His mercies are new every morning. And friends, this is my encouragement to you today is often we miss the mercies of God because we are looking for grand things to happen when really they are the small mercies that still flow that attest to His divine love not having been moved. Isn't that fantastic? That we can depend upon the living God knowing that His mercy to His people is ever-present. Someone said, every divine blessing has the freshness and the fragrance of the morning about it. Unfailing as the morning dawn, bright and joyous as the morning sunshine, brilliant and sparkling as the morning dew, sweet and invigorating as the morning air. So there we see the, the reality that His mercies never come to His end and end. His love is steadfast. Verse 24, we also see God's faithfulness as the foundation for our assurance. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. This is our invitation, beloved. Verse 24, to rest our assurance whether or not we are going to see God in all of His glory, not upon us, but upon our portion. Not upon our own good works. Not upon the world around us. Not at the circumstances going, God, have you forgotten me? But on God Himself. Friends, part of what we have to come to square with in dealing with this text is what had they forgotten? And I've already mentioned it, but but here explicitly, they had forgotten Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26. They had walked away from it. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The nation of Israel had forgotten that, but here, part of what the the new morning mercies are that the prophet of God is reminding the nation again. They might have walked away from God being their only portion, But Jeremiah has not forgotten. And and part of what we see also in the the narrative of Lamentations is there's always a faithful remnant. One of God's mercies is to look not for where all of the crowds are gathered and all of the, 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 the religious hubbub is happening in a particular day, but to look and find faithful people under the Word of God. Or, or, or here's something they forgot when the Lord spoke to Aaron in Numbers chapter 18. The Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land. Neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your per- portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. This is why the psalmist says in Psalm 16 that he has a beautiful inheritance. It's not because he's looking out going, I, I'm, I'm going I'm to get a lot of land and money. It's because his portion, his inheritance, is the person and the work of the triune God. 
Here the word portion in, 20, in verse 24 means to divide. And, and what, what, what Jeremiah is saying is you can divvy up everything in this world. Put it all in categories. Add it all together. And what I want more than the sum of all the earth is to rejoice in the God of my salvation. He is the one that I hold on to in spite of all that befalls me in this life. No matter the suffering that comes, God is still my inheritance. He is my portion. He is where I rest for assurance. And then verse 25, we see God's faithfulness to those who wait on Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him. To the soul who seeks Him. And then look at verse 26. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. He's saying here, God is especially good to those. He's good and He's benevolent in all that He does across the earth. And that is just true. But He's particularly good to those who wait to be delivered by Him. And the question then, I think in light of these verses, especially verse 25, the soul that seeks Him, what does this seeking mean? What does it mean to seek the Lord? Does it mean to be the best theologian of your day? Does it mean to have all of your theological answers, uh, questions answered uh, perfectly and with erudition? No. What it means to seek the Lord in the context of lamentations is to remember that our God alone has mercies that are new every morning. And I'm running to Him with nothing in my hands, clinging only to the mercy that He can give. Receiving from Him what I do not deserve. True seekers of the living God don't try in their own strength to be good religious people. They realize that they have left the words of God that they have offended a holy God, and they run to Him for what He and He alone can do. That is what it means to seek the Lord. You don't strut in seeking the Lord. You come humbly before Him knowing that mercy is in His hands alone. So in verses 22-26, through 26, we see that what Jeremiah has declared here is ever true, great, is God's faithfulness. Friends, couldn't we stand here today and just give testimony after testimony to the faithfulness of God in, the spite, of, in spite of our rebellion? That, that God is good in the face of our depravity. But then there comes this particular, in the face of God's, in the face of God's greatness and His faithfulness to His people, Israel, Jeremiah levels with us and he says, here is the good gift of God. The TBN crowd, the TV turkeys, they all sell to you and some of them seem like good old boys that tell you how to lead a good moral life that will lead you straight to hell. And then there are those who are so obviously errant that they want to teach you how to have health and wealth and all of the good things because if God really loves you, Donna, he wants you to have a Ferrari. And Brian, if he really loves you, he wants you to, to have all of the wealth in the world. Boy, Jeremiah would be a horrible TBN preacher. 
they would kick him out fast. Because that's not the gift that God gives to his people. Let's look at verses 27 through 30 and find what God gives. It is good for a man to, that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may be yet hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes. Let him be filled with insults. What is expressed here is this peculiar gift that God gives to sinners whom He loves. I think I've used this analogy before, but it's kind of like getting socks at Christmas time. We all know that we need them, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we want them. It's not at the top of our list. And here's the reality in light of these verses, they're easier to talk about than they are to live. Suffering is good for us, and that is what ultimately Jeremiah is telling the nation. Everything that has just happened, all of the problems, these are good for you. Boy, that'd be great and refreshing to find an American politician who would be honest enough to tell the American public, hey, these problems that we're experiencing as a nation are coming to us in light of our departing from the Word of God. You know, all of those civil rights cases that we had where we decided that we would banish the Word of God from the public square and from our schools, that really is the problem, and so we're suffering. How well would that go? Here, it's, it's the exclamation of what Jeremiah is saying. It's good for us to bear the suffering of God when we are young. Why? Because it produces steadfastness in our life. Friends, one of the most, I think, sad realities in the church are older people who have lived their whole Christian life in self-righteousness. I'm good enough. I've made the right decision. I recently had someone tell me, well, I've never had financial problems because I've always made the right decisions. And I just remembered thinking, what a fool. None of the money that has found its way into your checkbook ultimately has come because of your good decisions. Suffering is, in fact, a grace to the people of God. When we think we are strong, and, and friends, step back, from the, step back from the whole of the Old Testament. How well does the nation fare when she thinks she's strong in her own might? She always falls. We show a lack of wisdom. So, so the question then, what, what, suffer, what does suffering do in our youth? One, it teaches us to look up, not out. When we suffer as young people, it causes us to have to reckon with the fact that this world is broken and offers us no lasting hope. Secondly, when we look up and we begin to live life, listen y'all, read, Lamenta read Lamentations and then read Ecclesiastes and just go back and forth. There's so much interplay of uh, when, when we learn through suffering that everything under the sun is Koaleth or, or Solomon, it, it, when, when, when the preacher tells us that everything under the sun is vain, he's learned throughout his youth in chasing women and wine and material possessions that none of these things ultimately bring lasting peace and joy. And that is here, I think, what 
Jeremiah is aiming at. Paul also declares similarly in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but to the things that are unseen are eternally. Ultimately, suffering purges us from tepid convictions. Suffering drills down into our hearts doctrinal reasoning and fiber that we are willing to stand and rest in the promises of God. When, when we suffer, God teaches us deep lessons. It's why the psalmist said in Psalm 119, verse 71, it was good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn your statutes. And what we have to see I think in the context of understanding, it's good that the young person... I mean, friends, this is the most audacious statement. It might be easy to take on a Sunday morning 3,000 years removed. But in the face of what has just happened, their young men have been carried off into captivity. Mothers have lost their children. And this jerk of a prophet has the audacity to say that it's good for our children to suffer. Jeremiah, open your eyes. Look at what's going on. Look at what has happened to our children. And Jeremiah would look back at those mothers and those people and he would say, I know, but what God is working in your sons who are suffering is an eternal weight of glory that is having experienced in their young adult life that leaving the Word of God has brought them to ruin and nakedness and shame and humiliation. Those who endure through that suffering will never forget that the Word of God has a high degree of value. That's what they're being taught. It's good that we suffer. Why? Because in our suffering, we come to the reality that the promises of the God of the heavens are eternally important and valuable. The things of this earth grow strangely dim in the light of our suffering and in light of His glory and His grace. God ultimately is up to giving us our greatest good through suffering. And friends, we can't think about this reality without thinking about Christ. That He is the one ultimately who has suffered innocently, and yet God was doing it for His glory and for our good. So this verse, these verses not only tell us that it's good to suffer, and it is, but they also tell us, ladies and gentlemen, how we are to suffer. And it's fantastic. Not easy, but a good lesson. I I, I can't tell you the number of times that I went through this this week, and I thought to myself, why didn't somebody tell me this a long time ago? Boy, this would have been really helpful in the first year of my ministry. This would have really been helpful when I was a teenager. Which illustrates the entire reality of what Jeremiah is saying, that it's better to learn this young. The younger you can learn these lessons, the better. And so he doesn't only tell us that it is good to suffer because God is ultimately teaching us to value His promise, give us... His promises, giving us wisdom and causing us to look to Him. But He tells us how, in fact, we grow in that. One is through godly fear. Look at verse 28. Let Him sit alone in silence when it is laid upon Him. 
What, what Jeremiah is saying here is don't complain about it. Don't whine about it. Sit down and be quiet. When you experience suffering, it's pretty natural when somebody slanders you to say, oh, that's okay. No big deal. I'll just sit here and take it. I mean, isn't that the natural response from the human heart? No! We all, maybe you don't, but where I was raised, like, I have redneck blood flowing through my veins. And oh no, he didn't do that. I'm fixing to, and whatever, they, that's how we respond. But here Jeremiah says that the, the right way is with reverential fear to God, knowing that He is holy and He sees your response to your suffering. Wow, that's harsh, Jay. I think one of the the most climactic illustrations of this principle of remaining silent in the face of God in light of our suffering comes in Leviticus chapter 10 when Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, offer strange fire before the Lord. You'll remember the narrative. I'll read from verses 1-3. through three. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censure and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which He had not commanded them. And fire came out before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. And before all people, I will be glorified. And the startling end to verse 3 comes in these five words. And Aaron held his peace. Here are two beloved sons of this man who is leading alongside Moses. And what is the problem for Nadab and Abihu? They have left the Word of God. It's the same problem that's going on in Lamentations. And what is the consequence But that they are consumed unto death? And Moses goes on to instruct others to carry their bodies out, being careful not even to touch their garments because they are not clean. God is holy and He will remember His Word. And then the outcome is, but Aaron, be silent. You have not a word to speak against the Lord. In your suffering, have godly fear. And then in verse 29, we see reverence. Let him put his mouth to the dust. There may yet be hope. What he's saying here is let everything be submitted to the Lord. Bow yourself to the ground. Show humble reverence before the Lord. Know that He is what Jeremiah has already said in in verse 18 of chapter 1, that He is righteous in allowing this suffering. And bowing yourself on the ground shows this humble reverence. There is no complaining. There's no moaning about this. There's no asking God, why would you allow me such a, such a godly person to suffer this? That's not going on here. It's merely remember who God is. Have a fear of the Lord. Humble yourself before Him. Know that He does everything right and purposefully. And yet, be reminded there may be hope in Him. And then finally, in verse 30, we see that living under the weight of the chastisement 
of God comes rightly when we are forgiving and we don't give way to resentment. Let them, verse 30, give his cheek, let him give his cheek to the one who strikes, and let him be filled with insults. Here we see the attitude of meekness before the one who, who, who has been used to chasten us. It's teaching us that when we are, this is what Jeremiah would be saying, when the Babylonians came and carried our children away, the Babylonians were the instrument but we need to be forgiving and kind to them and turn our cheek because ultimately the Babylonians taking us into captivity were merely the chastening instrument of Almighty God. Don't complain about it. Know that God is holy and don't be filled with resentment. Friends, think about our current cultural context. Are not most of our youth filled with some sort of resentment today? They will start a new movement every five seconds to fix the world around them. They'll fundraise till they're blue in the face. But sadly, we've not taught them a godly fear to humble themselves in the sight of the Lord. And to live without resentment. To live in a way where we can acknowledge past hurts, but we don't live in light of them. To to be people who don't take offense at the world around us. I'm telling you, Charlie Brown is is a theological mind. They gave everybody trophies. Like That is a problem. Because we don't all deserve trophies. And we don't all deserve to be patted on the back when we suffer. You want me to give you a practical piece of parenting advice that I don't always follow myself? If your children suffer in light of circumstances in this world, don't cover those things up for them. Allow them to feel the weight of those difficulties that God might be working in their life to create the character of Christ in them. Suffering is not the worst enemy to your children. You getting in the way of God's work is the worst enemy. Charles Spurgeon rightly said, and boy, if this wasn't a a memorized anecdote for me in, in early years here, if any man thinks ill of you, don't be angry at him, for you are far worse than he thinks you to be. It's a good pill that you need to swallow. We are far worse. But, but biblically, if you're looking for an illustration here of what it means to live without resentment and in light of, of knowing that God is ultimately the one behind all of the circumstances of our lives, I, I think that you have, you have it in spades in 2 Samuel chapter 16, verses 7-10. through 10. You'll remember this narrative. And Shimei said as he cursed, now this is David leaving because of his... Uh, his son coming against him. And so he's being cursed. Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. The Lord has avenged on you all of the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. And Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord and king? Let me go over and take off his head. 
I'm pretty sure that his descendants landed in Missouri somewhere. <laughs> but the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, who then shall say, Why have you done so? You see how David illustrates the whole point of, of lamentations? That, that David understands this man's unjust cursing and chastening of David. And I think David knows that there's some truth to the chastisement somewhere. But, but this chastisement is coming not first from the idiot that's screaming at him, but that idiot is an instrument in the hands of God to remind David of his sin. That David may sit in silence. That David might be humbled before the living God. That David might not be filled with resentment. Now, I want us to think about the realities of these things and not walk away from these words and go, well, that was, that was helpful, and then forget them. I want us to feel the weight of these things in our lives. To be people who are able to be quiet and silent in the face of our suffering. To be people who know ultimately God is on the throne and He rules and He reigns. To be people who are humbled before Him and who do not seek vengeance, but seek the best for our enemies, namely in declaring the Gospel of Christ to them. And we need to see, I think, also the, 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 the ascending weight of these things. If you have somebody that's suffering, and maybe it is innocent suffering in some sense, or maybe it's because of leaving the Word of God, whatever the case may be, I think one of the hardest things to teach them is to sit silently and just meditate on the Lord. Because we have so much anxiety built in us, up in us that we don't want to be silent. It's hard to sit still when you've been hurt, isn't it? I mean, gentlemen, when you're in your workshop and you hit your thumb with a hammer, the first thing that you do is sit down silently. Not a curse word comes out. Not one. Not at all. We tend to be outward with our suffering, don't we? But here's the first step. Set and be silent before the Lord. And then the next step is, is humbling ourselves before the Lord. And realizing that God has not been unjust to us. And that's, that's even harder. In our own self-righteousness and in indignation in some levels, it's hard to go from silence to in our hearts meditating on the reality that God is just and nothing here has befallen me that's not for my good. But the ultimate difficulty is finding ourselves in a position where we are willingly forgiving those who have come against us and realizing they are merely instruments in our Redeemer's hands. And friends, if the nation of Israel could come to that conclusion in light of their Babylonian captivity, I promise you, there's no circumstance in your life that you can't come to that conclusion as well. Now, I want to give you time. I think forgiveness and that trajectory is a process. We don't just show up. Don't show up to somebody that's suffering this week and say, my pastor just preached on this. There's three things you need to do. You've got 20 minutes. Do all three of them and you'll be great. You know, that, that person that's really abused you, if you can just forgive them in the next five minutes, the rest of your life will be fine. Because what we need to see is everything in our Christian life is a grace of God and forgiveness is no exception. Forgiving people that have hurt us is not something that we do by buckling down. It's something that comes to us as God teaches us to sit silently, to meditate on His goodness of chastening us, and then we come to the conclusion, if God can forgive me, I can forgive this person. But it takes time and it takes God's grace. 
And I think one of the most beautiful things about this passage is this, that our God knows our frame. And I know He knows our frame because of how this is written. Because these things are difficult. They're hard. He gives us a hard calling. Being quiet in the face of suffering, meditating on His goodness reverently, and living without resentment are not easy things in a world, to borrow John's words, that that lies in the power of the evil one. That's not an easy calling. And so God gives us three great principles about His own character in these remaining verses. And the first is that God will not allow this to go on forever. God will not let your suffering endure throughout your entire existence. Psalm 103 verse 9 really captures this well. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. But here in Lamentation chapter 3, we have it in verse 31, for the Lord will not cast off Forever. Matthew Henry said, We may bear ourselves up with this, that when we are cast down, we are not cast off. The father's correcting his son is not a disinheriting of him. God may chasten us, but he's not getting rid of us. Friends, it's good to bear the yoke in our youth. But even there, do you see the grace of God? It's good that a man bears the yoke in his youth, but he's put a time frame on it. And then he leans in and he tells us explicitly that it won't go on forever in verse 32. But though that he caused grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Earth really doesn't have a sorrow that heaven can't heal. You see the the joy of this verse? The same God who brings the yoke of suffering is the God who is in the end of the age ready to receive us with compassion. If our whole existence is filled with abject misery, and as you look through the pages of church history and you see the church being brutalized by this world, don't feel bad for the church because she is running headlong into the loving arms of her Savior who is abundant in mercy and compassion. Isaiah chapter 54, verses 7-8 through say, For a brief moment I deserted you, But with great compassion, I will gather you in overflowing anger. For a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. When God's suffering has achieved its ended purpose, God brings about His compassion. These verses in Isaiah chapter 54 and not think about our Lord who hung and suffered for a time on that tree and cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer to that is that He would never forsake any one of us. He brings about His wrath upon His Son that we might experience His compassion and grace forever. So one, God will not let us will not allow us to suffer forever. Secondly, God will never afflict us willingly. Look at verse 3. And I'm not saying willingly in the sense of His divine decrees. For He 
does not afflict from his heart or grieve, his ch- grieve the children of men. But what is being said here is he doesn't delight in our suffering. It is not his heart towards us to suffer. When men bring suffering, it is often brought into our lives by passion and malice or lust, but that's not how God works. When God divinely allows suffering through his providence into your life, God is not setting in the heavens and just having this joyous malice of look at the pain I'm causing them. You know, some people have a theology that comes out like this. Well, I hurt the heart of God, so He's going to hurt me. Friends, I want you to understand your sin is like shooting a BB gun at a freight train in the idea of hurting God. Now, ultimately, Christ has bore our sufferings in His body. He's felt them in that way. But in God's eternal felicity, He is not seeking retribution when He chastens us. His heart towards us is to bring us through that suffering not into shame, but into holiness. To make us into the image of His Son. His children may by faith see love in His heart even when we see a frown on His face and a rod in His hand. And we ultimately know all of this because of verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. His love is the impulse of our chastisement. His love is the reason why we experience chastisement. If you're ever suffering and you're thinking, maybe God doesn't love me, come back to these verses. His love never ceases. And the final thing in light of our suffering, and it's one of the categories that we all, I think, when we suffer, struggle in. And God speaks to it here. It is that God is a God of justice. God does not have a heart of malice, again, in our sufferings. He doesn't delight in wrongdoing. And so, wrongs committed in malice through the sinful hearts of men, even if they are allowed by God, will not go without punishment. The Babylonians will reap their due reward for what has befallen the city of Jerusalem in this context. And the individual friend that if you're here and you were abused or hurt in some horrific way, I want you to hear under the authority of the Word of God that this thing that has befallen you will never escape the justice of God. But I also want you to hear that vengeance belongs to the Lord and not to you. Listen to what he says in verses 34 through 36. To crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth. To deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High. To subvert a man in his lawsuit. The Lord does not approve. Our God is a just God. So to crush another image bearer, to deny someone justice, or to subvert the law will all be punished by the perfect judicial act of God at the end of the age. And it does not matter if it's the injustice of the Babylonians or in our day the horrific scenes that we see in the Ukrainian conflict or if it's someone who has afflicted you and no one else knows about it. God knows and God will in fact deal with it. To the young man or woman afflicted in their youth, know 
that it is God's kindness to mold into you the character of the one who received ultimate affliction on your behalf. It is ultimately His purpose in making you like His Son. So what are you to do in light of your lamentable suffering? You wait quietly with humility that only the Spirit of God can bring. And you act in forgiveness knowing that justice and vengeance belong to the Lord alone. That's what these verses teach us. These verses teach us the glorious reality of the steadfast love of the Lord. Look again with me. We can't leave without seeing this again. Verse 22, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. Beloved, I think one of our greatest problems in suffering is this that we have a skewed perspective, that we see through earthly lenses. We see our suffering merely in a finite frame and not with the weight of eternal glory that that is coming. We forget that God is molding each person here today for His glory in an eternal fashion. And the Bible tells us, that, tells us that these light momentary afflictions are not worth comparing with the glory that will be one day revealed in us. It's only in light of those promises that we can bear in our mortal frame to trust in the living God, to wait upon Him, and to be afflicted in our youth, knowing that He is going to keep every single one of His promises. If He would not relent the suffering that these Israelites endured in Jerusalem, if he would not forget even one of his words to the extent that he allowed this much suffering, I promise you on the flip side, he will not hold back a single ounce of his glory and blessing eternally. Picture behind me on the screen is of Bartholomew Dias, the cross of Bartholomew Dias. If you grew up in Portugal, you'll probably remember him. For the rest of us, this actually is borrowed from a uh, sermon by Charles Spurgeon on verse 21, Therefore I have hope. Uh, And he recounts the reality of this monument at the the southwesternmost point of Africa. The sea is generally very stormy. And when the Portuguese... Bartholomew and his comrades first set out through those storms. They went in really frail boats. And so they called this particular cape, this southwesternmost point of Africa, the Cape of the Storm. And it didn't come until years later, John II of Portugal was rounding with a better art flotilla and I think more bravery, just to be honest, and a better perspective. And part of what was happening was actually, if you read the historical context, because Spurgeon's illustration doesn't go this far, but if you read the whole context, John II had a different circumstance. There were treasures that were in India that he was longing for. And so you're a little bit more brave in your setting out when you realize there's a whole lot of money at the end of this journey. (laughs) 
And so he comes with more boldness. And as he rounds the same cape that had for decades been called the Cape of the Storm, when he came to that point, that pivotal turn, even though it was still the same stormy cape, he renamed it the Cape of Good Hope. And so it is in all of our lives, friends. If you're, in your experience, you may have seen many things that could be called the Cape of Storms. But you have weathered them all. And now you should set back and look at them as nothing more than the cape of good hope. And friends, I think there's something else that Spurgeon says in a different place that ties into all of this. And it's his declaration that he has learned to kiss the wave that throws him against the rock of ages. Isn't that a joy in our heart today? To know that all of the things we lament here We find ultimate joy in knowing that they are the very instrumentality of God to bring us close to His Savior. And so we can say with Jeremiah what he says in verse 21. This I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Would you pray with me? Father God, we come into Your presence today knowing and trusting You are a God of justice. Father, I I lament the suffering that so many experience in this community. Uh, Abuse of children. Abuse of women. um, Unkindness. Injustice. Those things are lamentable. But Father, we are called here as Your people not to live in light of the passing fads and movements of our day but to live in light of Your character, knowing that You are the God of justice, knowing that You are a holy one, knowing that ultimately we should come before You in reverence and that we should forgive those who have, who have sinned against us, knowing ultimately that all of the things that befall us in this life are only Your chastening us and molding us into the image of Christ. Father, if there's one here today that has never heard of the good news of the Gospel, that Jesus ultimately bore all of the sins of those He came to save on the cross, and that that we should cry out in faith and repentance and believe upon His name, that You have given this declaration that we are to repent and believe. It's not an invitation, it's a command. And if there's one here that has never bowed their knee to you, would you do what only you can do and open their blinded eyes to the glories of Christ that they wouldn't merely make a decision, but that they would run to Christ and Christ alone knowing that He is their only hope. For the rest of us who are in Christ, Father, might we be found faithful. Might we be people who remember that You are a holy God of justice who will bring about righteousness on the earth and that we are called in our age to live under the yoke of our suffering for your glory. Would you do this in our hearts and lives? In Christ's name, amen. If you would stand and we'll sing Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages. Left for me. 